0: the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to my YouTube channel or for listening on iTunes, Spotify, pretty much all the above. This Anchor host application is really good about getting the podcast content to pretty much uh, almost every platform that I, I can think of anyway. So uh, the two main ones at least, iTunes and um, Spotify. So, um, So the reason why I want to come on here today is to to talk about a concept not altogether unrelated from what we've been talking about over the last few episodes, really the last four episodes. If you're only listening on iTunes, if you're only listening to the podcast and you're not watching the YouTube uh, videos, you're going to miss out on some content because some of the... YouTube videos were just too long to, uh, to make into uh, audio episodes, and I just don't have the time to cut all the audio up and make separate parts and all that. So, so, so not everything makes it onto the podcast. Some things you, you need to check out on YouTube in order, to, in order to hear it, listen to it, watch it, whatever. Now, uh, I'm on here to, to talk more about Jeff Johnson's upcoming book, the failure of natural theology. Now, I just got a notification on my email that it's on on the way to my house, um, and so I don't know when it's going to arrive. If it's media mail, I paid for two day shipping, but you know, you never know how these things work out. So, um, so I'll have it in my possession soon. However, uh, what I wanted to do here is I wanted to try and give everyone a, an idea of some of the things that might be said in that book, chapter seven. If you go to the website of Free Grace Press, uh, chapter 7 in particular looks like it's going to have some criticisms for the orthodox or classical understanding of divine immutability under the problems, quote-unquote, of divine immobility, is how he puts it in the chapter heading. Now, we could sit here and speculate what he means by the chapter heading, or we could look at some other things that Dr. Johnson has written to help us to kind of get ahead of what's going to be in the book. Now, the article that I'm going to show you guys was written in 2015, so obviously he's had a lot of time to change his opinion, to change his view on this issue. However, this article comes out of another book that he's published um, called The Absurdity of Unbelief, which is still available in Kindle format on Amazon. So I don't think he's specifically retracted in principle anything that he's written in this chapter that he's turned into an article here on this blog. By the way, this this uh, article is posted to reformbaptistblog.com. It's kind of a dead blog. I don't know if there's any more contribution to it. Um, I think the 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 most recent stuff was from, like, uh, I don't know, 2000. Uh, well, there, there was something added. There has been some stuff added, uh, just not by Dr. Johnson. So Dr. Johnson doesn't look like he really contributes to it anymore. But anyway, the article that, that's in question here is called Simplicity and Trinity. Uh, and w- what he's trying to do is he's trying to reconcile the problem between God's simplicity and the plurality in the doctrine that's set forth in the doctrine of the Trinity. And um, what what he, he does this, in an, or he tries to do this in a number of ways, but... Um, I think he has a bad starting point because he's already assuming that the two concepts of, of 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 oneness and plurality, or of unity and plurality, are are mutually opposed to one another, which is I think the very problem that that assumed opposition that we that we make intellectually and formally is the problem that's actually brought together and reconciled in the one God of Christianity and the one God of, of Scripture. However, um we can kind of get an idea of what he's getting at here. I'll just bring up the window capture. That way you guys can see it for yourself. This is the introduction. Don't mind that diagram. We're not really going to pay attention to that, even though it's kind of cringy. Every time we're talking about the Trinity and you see a triangle, you you, you do right to get a little uh, a little cringed out. But that's not really what that di- uh, diagram is getting at. It's not a bad Trinity analogy, in other words. Um now, what he, what he does here in the introduction is he kind of makes some qualifications as to his view of divine simplicity, and he introduces the idea of formal differentiation within himself. He's not just talking about formal distinctions, but actual formal differentiations within the divine essence of God. Now, he does this in order to really pave a way for the doctrine of the Trinity, and if rightly qualified, we can get on the same page with one another by saying that, yes, there are there is a real distinction between Father and and son, a real distinction between son and spirit, a real distinction between spirit and father, right? So all of those distinctions between the persons or the relations in the Godhead are real distinctions. We're not modalists. We're not saying that God is one person who sequentially reveals himself according to different modes throughout redemptive history or anything like that. We are Trinitarians in the proper sense, in the sense that we believe that God is one essence who subsists fully in Father, who subsists fully in the person of the Son, who subsists fully in the person of the Holy Spirit. So, um, when he says this right here, God being simple, however, does not mean that he is without any formal differentiations within himself. Saying that God cannot be a collection of non-divine parts is not the same as saying that God cannot subsist in different divine persons that are in and of themselves fully God. Okay, so two things really need to be brought out of this paragraph. Number one, the kind of uh, obfuscation in the beginning half of the paragraph, um, which leads me to believe that he's making a distinction he shouldn't be making. There's an implied distinction here between non-divine parts and divine parts. Um so he, he says these non-divine parts are parts that are not in and of themselves fully God. And it looks like he's really lending himself to a violation of the law of identity. all right, um, or, or he's at least making some kind of exception for some kind of parts in the divine essence, which would seem to have implications, of course, on the classical doctrine of divine simplicity that denies parts in God's or in God whatsoever, okay. Um, so there's some there's some ambiguity in that statement, but the implied distinction is false. All right, it's not as if there are divine parts and non divine parts. Okay, uh, if 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 there, are, think of it this way: if there are divine parts, right, and he's saying that there is a possibility of there being divine parts in God that are fully. God. Well, then how are they distinguished one from the other? If they are distinguishable one from the other, then they are not fully God because then they wouldn't be distinguishable one from the other. There has to be distinguishing factors in them that would imply, of course, some actuality in one that is not in the other. All right. And if that's the case, then there is potential in some of those parts, and not only that, there are distinguishing factors that imply something proper to those parts that, that are not God, right? Because if everything's God, then there is, no, there is no distinction. If you're talking about just kind of these inert divine properties or parts in God, there has to be distinguishing distinguishable characteristics of those parts if you're going to make actual distinctions between them and and introduce some kind of differentiation within the divine essence. But understand that what Dr. Johnson is doing here is he's trying to account for plurality in God. And doing that, I think he's he's slipping into some language that is that is that is more than undesirable. Um, he does affirm, or at least he Look, it looks like he affirms, though we don't know what extent to which he affirms this, that each person within the Godhead is fully God, which would seem to imply that the one divine essence fully subsists in Father, Son, and Spirit, respectively. Um, but again, we don't really know how how far he goes with that. Does he really mean that the, that the whole divine essence, unqualifiedly so, subsists in Father, subsists in Son, and subsists in Spirit? I don't know. I don't know exactly what he means by autotheos. Uh, I know what Calvin meant by autotheos. I know what the post Reformed meant by autotheos. I don't know what he means by autotheos because this really isn't an article on autotheos. If you want a good academic treatment on autotheos, get Brandon Ellis's work on Calvin and classical Trinitarianism. And I reviewed that on my website, joshsummer.org. So if you want to look at that, just search Calvin comma, classical Trinitarianism, in the search bar toward the top. What I really want to focus on in this article is something that's relevant to the book that's coming out according to one of the chapter titles, the chapter title being the chapter title of chapter 7, and it seems like, or it looks like, it's going to be critiques uh, of what Johnson calls divine immobility, and... uh, One of the places I want to go in this particular article, because I think it's going to play out in, in this book, is the solution, the heading here is the solution for God and time. Again, what he's trying to do is he's trying to reconcile God's simplicity, divine simplicity with language of relationality, not only in terms of the Trinity, but God's relationship to other things, namely his creation. And one of the things that he says here is patently illogical and self-contradicting. This paragraph right here. The timeless and immutable nature of God, however, does not mean that God is restricted from moving himself. Now, at the bare minimum implied by this statement, is that there is a distinction between the nature of God and God himself, all right? If the nature of God does not change, but you're saying that God can move himself, like the the nature of God is immutable, right? But you're saying that God can move himself. Then you you are either making a distinction, a nonsensical distinction, Between the nature of God and God, which, if God is distinct from his nature, that would just beg the question of what is God? If you're not making a distinction between God himself and his nature, which again is a nonsensical distinction, then you are affirming a contradiction, a logical, formal contradiction. That which is immutable cannot be mutable. All right? That which is immutable cannot be mutable in the same sense and time, all right? At the same time, we might say, or simultaneously and in the same relationship. And then he goes on and he says, Even though God cannot be moved or changed by external causes, he can internally move himself in accordance with his immutable nature. The contradiction becomes even more irreconcilable uh, and contradictory. He can internally move himself in accordance with his immutable nature. What does that mean? What kind what does that actually mean? In what sense does God move himself if his nature is immutable? If you say Josh cannot move, But Josh can move. In what sense are you ascribing motion to Josh if you've already said that he cannot move? There has to be some sense in which he can move uh, in contradistinction to what you've said about him prior to that statement, namely that Josh can't move, that he's immutable or that he's immovable. But he doesn't really explain how this can be the case. He just affirms it. And in just affirming it, he's not explaining in terms of the sense of his words what this means. He's just making an affirmation. He's affirming a formal contradiction in terms. This is because motion, he says, all motion occurs directly or indirectly by the power of God who does all things according to his predetermined counsel. As we've seen, God is capable of temporal acts of power i.e., creating and governing the universe, because movement is inherent within his multipersonal existence. Movement is inherent within his multipersonal existence. Is there a distinction between his multipersonal existence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and his nature? And if there's no distinction, then you either have to give up Immutability, which he's affirmed, or he has to give up inherent movement, which he's also affirmed, or he has to describe the sense in which he means either. So, um, which I would which I would contend would be difficult for him to do unless he's just being hyperbolic and poet waxing poetic um, about about. The doctrine of God. However, I don't think that that's the case. So uh, now, one of the things that I want that I want to uh, that I want to to bring up here is the 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 the, the illogical or irrational belief that something can be self moved that something can be self-moved in classical language. And I think it's, 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 it's self-evidently the the case. um, Something cannot be self-moved any more than something can be self-created. And, and the reason for that is because if you're, if you're, if you're asserting that something is self-moved in an absolute way, like obviously we, we, we have this idea of, of, uh, human anatomy and, and and the human person has the ability to move himself in a, a qualified sense, but not absolutely. Like, I only move because I'm moved by another. And also, when I say Josh moves, I'm actually not saying Josh in himself moves because that's not the case. I'm moving through a series of different causes that are both simultaneous and linear. All right. So one of the ways that I move is through my mind and my mind sends or my brain sends signals to my uh, neurosystem and my neurosystem talks to my muscles and fires impulses that cause my muscles to move. So there, there is a process by, through which I move. I'm not self-moved in the absolute sense because there are things I depend on in order to move. In other words, I'm moved by something else. I mean, if you're just talking about the linear causal series, I'm obviously moved by something else because without my parents, I would not be here to move, right? So there's all sorts of causation uh, and things that I depend upon that go into why I move, explaining and causing my motion and my movement. God is not like that, all right? So when you say that something is self-moved, all right, you, you either have to say that The motion itself is God, in which case you would have to deny unqualifiedly immutability. You'd have to throw it out the window and you'd be a pantheist at that point because you would be saying motion and God are identifiable. Welcome to Heraclitus. Or you would have to say that something in God is moving him to do what he is doing. Or you would have to say that something outside of God is moving him to do what what he is doing now dr johnson has already denied that something outside of god is moving him to do what he does right he's denied external movement but he has affirmed internal movement right now here's his dilemma he either has to affirm that god himself is motion right is the motion is identified with the motion in god or he has to admit that not everything in god is god or he has to admit the illogical that God, that the motion is God, but is, but is also not God at the same time and in the same relationship. He has nowhere to go other than those possibilities. And all of those possibilities in the final analysis, and it's not difficult to see at all, are totally irrational, irrational and, are, and, and, and do not comport... One iota with the formal laws of logic. This is the kind of finagling that is required that ends you in total irrationality that is required if you are going to skirt around classical theism and try to invent your own charted course. Um, 2,000 years of church history has not been for nothing. 2,000 years of church history and affirming a classical doctrine... Of theism, or of theology proper, of immutability, of simplicity, etc., impassibility, has not been for no reason. And it hasn't just been some, uh, uh, it it hasn't just been some um, sophistry cloaked in Christianese. It's not just an Aristotelian hangover the reason these things have been put in place in terms of our theology as Christians is for a reason. It's so that we do not deny God, right? It's so that we do not deny God, the true God that exists. And it's also so that we do not affirm contradictions and thus uh, rebel against God in our uh, rational or irrational discourse. You see, this is an intellectual sin, and to 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 not to 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 not say, okay, guys, I, I I got this wrong. Here's what here's what I'll do, and here's a here's a statement of correction. To not do that and instead pursue this further, which I'm afraid he's going to do in the failure of natural theology, is an intellectual sin. It's to persistent in intellectual sin. It's to dis obey God is to rebel against God concerning his natural law. And it's to affirm a God that is, or is to confess a God that is not revealed in the scripture. Now he would say, but motion is ascribed to God in scripture. John Frame does this. Scott Oliphant does this. They, the, All of these guys do this. And, and they happen to be presuppositionalists where they say, okay, And I think it's directly linked to their rejection of natural theology. But because there's no natural theology, they've become functional biblicists, even though they deny being biblicists. They have become functional biblicists because they say, look, God obviously relates to his creatures in time, etc., etc., etc. The Bible reveals that. Yet, because they've rejected natural theology and the tools that natural theology gives us to do systematic theology, again, all grounded out of the scriptures, um they end up not being able to make the proper distinctions, not being able to make the proper qualifications, while considering the Scripture as a whole, um, with regard to God and how His creation relates to Him, or how He's brought His creation in relation to Him. You would never see Dr. Johnson, Dr. Frame, Dr. Oliphant affirm anthropomorphisms univocal anthropomorphisms about God in other words they would never say god actually has a nose god actually has arms god actually has you know a head and a neck and all of these things that the old testament poetically ascribes to him to increase our understanding of one aspect of the divine being or another and the way he covenantally covenantally interacts with his creation um you you could you, you don't, you, you don't make those kinds, if you don't make those kinds of distinctions, if you don't make those kinds of distinctions that this is analogical predication about God and not univocal predication about God, then you end up in all sorts of... Um, and, and what I was trying to say earlier, I got off track, but I was trying to say that, you know, none of these guys would, would affirm anthropomorphisms about God in say. They would never affirm... Uh, ad intra-anthropomorphisms about God. They would never say this is how God exists in himself. Yet they will take all of the times in Scripture that God and his creation are related together and and there seems to be time-bound language ascribed to to God's relationship to his creation and all of this, and they'll say that those things apply univocally to God. Um, And... Why they do that with some things in Scripture and not with others, I don't know. I've never seen a, I've never seen a a, a, a sufficient response to that. Uh, it's just kind of arbitrary. Like we're comfortable with ascribing timefulness to God. We're comfortable with ascribing change to God because Scripture attributes these things to to God in some way. But we're not comfortable with ascribing anthropomorphisms to God properly. You know, we're not going to say that, that God has in himself or inherent to himself arms and legs and eyes and nostrils. But we will say that God has movement inherent within himself. Why they're comfortable with doing one and not the other, I, I don't know. Anyway, here we are at 25 minutes. I got to close out of here. God bless you guys. Thank you for tuning in. If this was helpful at all... Please give me a thumbs up and don't forget to click the subscribe button down below. Click the bell for continued notifications, so you can see when new content pops up here. God bless. Have a wonderful rest of your day.